So if I were to ask you what is the most important thing on your person right now, you might say it's glasses if you wear glasses. You might say it's your Rolex watch because I saw a few of them. I know, I know where I am. You might say it's the keys to your Mercedes outside. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what you would say. You might say it's your phone. If you ask me, I'd tell you it's my wallet, even though I don't even have my wallet on me. So that's ironic, isn't it? It's in my coat. But uh, if it was my wallet, it wouldn't be because it's a beautiful wallet. I used to live in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and I bought my wallet believing it was authentic. And uh, recently I was looking at the brand name and it was misspelt. So it's not an original wallet. Um, I paid a lot for that wallet. Um, anyway, it's not because it's full of money. It's only got like $2 in it. and I'm in the wrong country for that. Uh, it's not because of the credit cards. They're all maxed out on the receipts that are in the uh, uh, wallet that I need to claim. It's none of those things. It's because actually it holds my business card. And before you think, gosh, what an egoistic person we have here today who values his business card, it's not because it's got my name on it. And it's not because of my position on it. It's because of what's on the back. And what's on the back is the tagline of Youth for Christ, which is about seeing young people's lives changed by Jesus because we believe that the gospel changes lives. We believe Jesus can come into the hardest and the most broken of situations and bring transformation, bring light, release captives, and bring freedom. That's what we believe, and that is what we're committed to. And as, as, as was rightly said, our reach in this country, gosh, what a privilege. Uh, last year alone, we reached an interactive with 1.7 million young people. That's 14 percent of young people in this country. And we, we live in a privileged society that allows us to do that. I've lived all over the world, as was said. Most of that time was with the persecuted church where you couldn't have the freedom to talk about who Jesus is. But just to touch real quickly and give you one real quick insight of the ministry of Youth for Christ, of which you have one on your doorstep. We're all Youth for Christ, which do a great job. Um, <clears throat> we were asked to go into a school in the north of England and to do an RE lesson. And it was a Muslim school, it was about 98% Muslim. The entire staff were all Muslims. And uh, the Youth for Christ worker was in this class teaching on the Good Samaritan because the RE teacher said, could you give a perspective of God's love from a Christian angle? And so she talked about the Good Samaritan. As she was doing so, a hand went up and said, Miss, the problem with the Good Samaritan is that he helped a Jew. To which the, the, the Youth for Christ worker said, oh gosh, um, okay, and kind of navigated through that conversation and talked about God's love and acceptance for anyone. And at the end, the hand went back up and said, okay, miss, I guess God would want us, regardless of which God it is, would want us to uh, love anybody. <clears throat> As she leaves the class, the RE teacher, who is a Muslim, says, I really struggle. We are struggling with Ofsted. We are failing in RE because we have no understanding of Christianity. All we got to go off is a website called Our Request, which teaches about Christianity. And the teacher said, well, the Youth for Christ worker said, well, that's our website, and I help contribute. And the teacher said, would you come back in? So she went in regularly to this school to talk about Christianity. They then invited her to be a board member, a trustee, uh, a governor, of which she was the only Christian uh, as a governor. And recently, that school won an outstanding award for the teaching of Christianity. It went from a position of absolutely failing to winning an outstanding award because it allowed us to come in and talk about who Jesus is. We then set up a ministry uh, to help a church start a youth ministry from scratch, which was on the doorstep of that school. And that school had a mosque next to it, which was shut down by the secret services in this country because of its extremism. So a lot of those young people were impacted by extremist thinking and ideology. She goes, they, they do this drop-in club, we're helping run it, whole lot of young people come into it. We then pay for a bunch of them to go away. Twelve Muslim young people came to faith in Jesus. We have to 
be bold and we have to be courageous and we must not be ashamed of this gospel because it changes lives. One of the challenges that I have noticed coming back to Britain, and I'm going to get onto the message right now, I'm getting there, uh, is, is, is uh, the, the reality that it's one thing for someone to come to faith in Jesus, but it's another for them to grow in their discipleship and walk in love for Jesus. And one of the challenges that we are presented with in Britain is that we often give young people nuggets and say, feast on that, and it just simply isn't enough. We need to help young people really grow in their faith to be vibrantly in love with Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, that message isn't just for young people, it's for all of us. So I wrote a book for young people uh, called Under Construction, and it's all about, and I'm going to give you the adult version, and when I say adult, I don't mean something inappropriate, it's totally appropriate. version of that this morning, but it's all about what does it mean for Jesus to truly come in and bring change in our lives? Because we can make a decision to follow Jesus, but it's got to be so much more. That's just the beginning. We've got to live out a life with him and allow him to do that which he wants to do within us. But I think there is a discipleship crisis in this country, and we have to address that. So when I was growing up, which was um, uh, Yorkshire, <clears throat> I, uh, uh, at the end of our road was an old derelict house. I was about nine, ten years of age. And this house was totally broken down and in disrepair. My parents were frustrated and mad that it was there because it was such an eyesore and it just needed to be bulldozed. And my brother said, the thing about that house is they can't ever sell it or do anything with it because the man was killed in his bed and now his ghost roams around the house. So I'm 9, 10, and I look at my brother and said, well, there's only one thing to do then. We need to break in. So we went to the house, and we pulled the, uh, the, the, the wooden panels off, and we snuck inside. And as we got in, this house was in total disrepair. The floorboards were a mess, and we couldn't see where we were going. And we pressed along the, the floor and made our way and found the steps and started to go up the steps, and some of the steps were missing. And we made our way into what we believed was the bedroom. There was only one room upstairs other than the toilet. And so we were in this bedroom, and my brother says, come out, come out wherever you are. Now, my little 10-year-old heart is going so fast. I think I'm going to have a heart attack at 10. And I'm like, what's happening? And then suddenly there is this almighty scream. It's horrific. And which my brother says, run, but I need no encouragement. I'm already gone. I'm like a greyhound. I'm going down those steps. I'm jumping over the missing steps and jumping over the missing floorboards. I find the window. I jump through the window. And as I'm picking myself up off the floor, my brother is now climbing out of the window and he's laughing. I say, what are you laughing about? He says, you should have seen your face when I made that noise. At which point I realized it was my brother and what an idiot of a brother I have. I was irritated with him. My parents were irritated with the people who owned the house at the end of the road, which was in total and utter disrepair. But somebody saw its value and its potential and they bought it and they renovated it. And they transformed it. And it's now a beautiful, stunning house. They had a vision for something that was in disrepair. We came back to the UK after living overseas for about 18 years. And we didn't own property. We'd been renting. And we were able to buy a house. I know nothing about houses. You're going to pick this up so quickly this morning. And we buy this house. uh, And within a very short period of time, uh, 
the, the, there's a wind like there was last weekend, this weekend, and the fence is just totally gone, and it hits the neighbor's car. Now, there's no insurance for fences disappearing, which I'd learned, uh, and there's definitely no insurance for fences hitting neighbor's cars, just awkward conversations to be had with them. Uh, the roof starts to leak, and then we notice a crack that goes from the bottom of the house all the way up to the top. I don't know nothing. I'm like, hmm, what is that? And so I have the builder in to do a bathroom. I say, hey, while you're here, I just wondering about that crack outside uh, on the rendering. And so he goes outside and he chips away at the rendering, which I didn't ask him to do because now there's an ugly mark there. And uh, then he comes inside and I definitely didn't ask him to do this. And he chips away at the plastering inside the house. And then he reveals, I don't know if it's up there, if you could just go, oh, you can't really see it. But there is some cracks uh, among the brickwork where you can get three, four fingers between the cracks. The house is separating. We bring in a structural engineer and he says, yeah, you have a problem. I know I have a problem. The house is cracking. To which he said, yeah, you've got subsidence, which is the foundations. The house is imploding. It's splitting in half. This has been going on for some time out of sight. Now, there's a thought. It's been going on for some time out of sight. But I want to ask you a question. And my question is this. What if your life resembled a metaphorical house? What if your life resembled a metaphorical house? What would the condition be of your house? Would it have some challenges? Would there be, for example, a problem with the cracks? Would there be some issues with the floorboards? Might there be an issue with the roof? Might there be a challenge with the boiler where you're not always as warm as you would like to be? Might you look great on the outside, but on the inside there's a challenge, but maybe on the inside there might be a challenge. On the outside you look great, I don't know. But what would your metaphorical house look like? Let me switch it and ask you, what is the state of your house today, your actual house not is it tidy, but just its condition. And if the original architect turned up, what would he or she say about it? That'd be a challenge for us. Our house was made in the 1800s. I don't think that's going to happen. Might do. They'd be, anyway. Um, so what would the condition be? How would they find it? For years and years, we rented. And when you rent a house, it's always interesting because once a year or twice a year, the owner will turn up or the estate agent and he'll inspect the house. Most of the time, it was fine, but we have four children who have energy. Uh, and sometimes it wasn't fine. And sometimes you'd have to have conversations with them. We believe, don't we, as Christians, that we are made for a purpose. We believe that we have a reason to be here on earth. And whether you believe that you were created in seven days or seven trillion years, it's totally irrelevant. What is relevant is that you were created by a God to know him. That's what we believe. Genesis 1, 26 says that we are made in the image of God. And that can be a little confusing for us because God is spirit and we are physical. We have form. Therefore, how can we be made in the image of something that is spirit? How does that work? Well, that word image is misleading because actually the correct translation from Hebrew to English is shadow. We have the shadow of God upon us. Almost like his thumbprint on our lives. We hold his DNA. Why is this relevant? Because no matter what the state of your metaphorical house may be, whether the roof has a leak, whether the door is hanging off the hinges, whether the glass is smashed, whether there's a crack down the side, he looks at you and says, you have incredible 
potential. And I am going to work in your life and move you to a place where you can be the person that I created you to be. But you've got to let me do that. So how does that work? Well, 16 years of age, I come from a fairly broken, hurting, dysfunctional background. And on New Year's Eve, there's a knock at the door. And it's the authorities. And my dad calls me into the living room. I'm like, what's going on? And these people say, look, you, you're a danger to yourself and you're a danger to others, so we're taking you away. 16 years of age, I'm taken away to a facility with bars on the window and I am not free to do whatever I want. I'm eventually allowed out and as I'm let out, they say, hey, uh, you're going to be back here. You people are always back here. And there were words of hope spoken over me. I'm like, gosh, okay. And I go home and I'm broken, I'm hurting and I've lost all my friends. And no one wants to be associated with me. And I just lock myself in my room. I don't want to come out. And there is one person who keeps turning up at the house, knocking on the door, who went to my school, who I just considered to be a bit of a freak, a bit of a weirdo, didn't want anything to do with him. And even in this current state of having no friends, I still don't want to be associated with him. And he just keeps persistently turning up at the house. And I'm saying, mum, tell him I'm not him. And she's had enough. One day she says, no, you tell him. So I go down and say, yeah. And he says, here's the deal. I know you don't want to see me, but if you agree to go out one evening with me, I will leave you alone for the rest of your life. So I'm like, all right. But I didn't read the terms and conditions of this agreement. And I should have done. I should have asked a little more. So we get in the car and we go somewhere and I think we're going to Mackey's, but we actually turn up outside of a church and I said, what are we doing here? And he says, oh, don't worry. This is actually a youth event in the, in the uh, hall and there's a band and so on. So I go in there and there's like 200 young people. There's a band at the front, but I immediately go on high alert because there are two adults I recognize as absolute freaks who have been into my school, and they're from an organization called Youth for Christ, which is ironic, I'm now leading it, and they're in there, and I think they're a cult, and I'm thinking, what, I've been brought to a cult meeting, what is going on? And uh, the band start playing, and they're singing weird songs about blood and redeeming sacrifice, and I can't get my head around this at all. Why are people singing like that? And what are they meaning when they sing that? And someone gets up and starts preaching, and I don't listen to a word they're saying. But I zone back in at the last line, and it's that classic line, isn't it? Which we've heard so many times. If anyone here tonight who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then they can do so. And at 16 in this place, I remember thinking, Lord and Savior, give him your life. What does that mean? Who teaches people to talk like that? But there's enough there for me to connect what they're saying. And I say, in my head, I say, okay, God, if you exist, if you're really there, you can take my stupid, pathetic life because if you don't, I'm pretty sure I will. Now, wherever I sent that message into cyberspace, the person at the other end not only heard it, received it and turned up in person. And that night, my life was totally and utterly transformed and I left there a completely different person. Why? Because Jesus said, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. I have come to set the captives free. I've come in order you might have life, life in all its fullness. And I left there totally different. And my journey with God became quite interesting because I grew in areas hugely. There were areas of my life where I grew remarkably in character, in, in disciplines. But there were other areas that didn't grow. 
And there's a disproportionate side to my, my progression in my faith. Areas where I was hugely growing and areas where there was no growth at all. And it didn't make sense to me. And this went on for years. And here's the thing. See, when Jesus comes and when we become a follower of Jesus, it says in the Bible, not only does he turn up, he wants to move inside. So Revelation 3.20 says, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever opens that door, I will come in and I will eat with them. And the picture there is of Jesus coming into our lives. And in Ephesians 3.17, it says that Christ will make his home within us. The picture here is of the architect wanting not just to turn up and inspect the building, but to move inside and to live with us. But for so many of us, we say, you know what, Jesus, that's okay. I am a Christian. I do follow you. But I'm leaving you in the hallway. You can come in, but you're in the hallway. I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to do my bit, but I'm going to just stop there. Others of us say, no, no, I'm actually taking this serious. You, Jesus, you can come into my living room. You can go into the kitchen. You can go into the bathroom. That's fine. But there are some areas of my life I don't want you to touch. There are some areas of my life that are actually off limit to you. And you cannot come into these areas. And the truth of the matter is, and that was the case for me, there were rooms in my life I didn't even know existed. And one day Jesus had to say, it's time that we went into those rooms. And for some of us, we have rooms in our lives that we keep off limit to Jesus. We close the door, we shut the curtains, we turn the light off because we just don't want him in that area. And our growth will always be disproportionate at that point. As a follower of Jesus, we have to give him complete and full access. If we want to reach our complete potential in him, then we've got to say, Jesus, you've got access to everywhere. You can go wherever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can make whatever change you want to make. So when I first became a Christian, I uh, would be rolled out to give my testimony, which is much longer than what I shared with you. And um, uh, I was in some very Pentecostal environments, and I knew nothing about anything. Uh, and so I remember this lady, I gave my testimony, this lady said, oh, the anointing of God is so on you, you need to pray for people now. So I just like, had the line of people, I was praying for them, 17 years of age. I didn't even know at this point, you should ask people what they want prayer for. So I'm just praying nonsense over people, because I don't know what they want. So I, I, I remember praying for this lady, and I just, must have been nonsense, I said. But I had this incredible image and when I finished, I, I, she looked disappointed by my prayer. People still do. Um, and uh, after I finished, I just said, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know anything about pictures or anything. I said, but I had this image. It was so strong. It was a picture of a house. And it was a house without any floorboards. And I, and I, said, I said, oh, it's silly, isn't it? And she visibly reacted. I said, are you okay? And she said, yes. But I've had a dream this entire week. And it's been a dream on a loop. Every night, I dream it two, three times over, and it's a house without any floorboards, just like you've just described now. In the Bible, there are two men, aren't there? One builds his house on a rock, the other on the sand. When the storm comes, the house that's built on the rock, it stands and it remains. The house built on the sand, it implodes and crumbles, a bit like my actual house. And the truth of the matter is, when Jesus comes into our lives, one of the first things he wants to do is to rip up the floorboards and to lay down new floorboards based on how we are to perceive him with a true understanding of who he is. Because when we have a true understanding of who God is, then we will have a true understanding of how he sees us. And when we have a true understanding of how he sees us, it will impact how we see ourselves and how we see the world around us. 
And the reality is there are many people, and some will be here today, that have an incorrect view of how God actually sees you. Some of us are here saying, yeah, I know God loves everybody, but he can't possibly really love me. And I know God wants to heal everybody, but that thing going on in my life, he wouldn't really want to do that. And I would dare to suggest that perhaps some of your floorboards have some cracks and Jesus would want to come in and relay them and say, actually, you need a correct perspective of who I am because a house without any floorboards, you can't move from one room to another. You can't set anything in place. You can't build your life on anything until you truly understand who he is and how he sees you. My, one of my friends, uh, again, after I became a Christian, uh, still young, I go to his house, and as I'm at his house, I didn't know any Christian songs at all. I'm totally from an unchurched background, and there was just one song I knew, and it made no sense to me. It was just this Greek song, which had uh, some of it in Greek, some of it in English, and I only knew one line. It was, Kyrie eleison, look around you, what can you see? And that's all I knew of this song. And I'm in his house, and I'm just singing this to myself. Kyrie eleison, look around you, can you see? Lord, have mercy, look around you, what can you see? And that's what I'm singing over and over again. And he's getting really irritated. Uh, He should have been getting irritated by my singing, because I can't sing. But it wasn't that. It was the words of the song. And eventually he says, okay, okay, I know you know. And I look at him and say, what do I know? He says, I know you know, let's not pretend this, I know you know. I'm like, I don't know what you think I know, but let's pretend that I do know what you think I know, and so tell me. And he goes, okay. And then he pulls from under his bed a whole load of adult pornographic magazines. And when I was singing the song, look around you, what can you see? He felt God was saying, if you don't show him, I'm going to show him. For many of us, we have things in our lives that we either hide or are from our past are things going on that we just don't want others to know about. And for some of us, we lock God out of that as well. And we say, God, whether it be a habit, whether it be a historical thing, whatever it might be, I just don't want you in this area. This just isn't for you. For my friend, that moment of discovery was a moment that was painful for just a few moments. But he moved from there to a place of total transformation and redemption and change and light came into that setting. In Ephesians 5, it talks about everything, 5.13, it says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And here's the thing. My theology does not allow me to believe that Jesus wants to rummage around in our lives to bring about shame and embarrassment. My theology believes that Jesus wants to come in to bring change and transformation so that we can be healthy and right and be the people that he has created us to be. But we can't do that if we hold things back from him. If there are doors in our lives that are locked to him, if there are lights that are turned off because he wants to bring light in and to bring change to habits and secrets and issues that we hold back so that we can become the people that he has created us to be. My house then, so... Within a short period of time of buying this house, uh, we bring in the roofer because it looks like there's some guttering problems. And the roofer comes in and says, oh, it'll be about 300 pounds just to fix your guttering. So I'm like, okay. 
I didn't know if that was a good deal or not. Um, so I'm like, okay, come in and do it. And I'm at work, and my phone goes crazy, and it just keeps going crazy on repeat, and I'm in the meeting, and eventually I'm realizing someone really wants to talk to me. So I pick up my phone, and it's the, it's the, the, the guy doing the roof, and he says, hey, I'm on your roof right now, and forget the guttering, you actually have a whole lot of holes in your roof, and there's a bush growing out of the roof. And he takes pictures, and he shows me the videos, and I'm like, aye, that's not good, is it? And he says, no, that's not good, you need to fix this. And so I get quotes, and we get it fixed, and it costs a lot more than 300 pounds. That was a shocker. I don't like owning a house, just so you know. This is where I'm at. But I, I, I pay it and we get the, the, the roof fixed. But my point is this. When the storms of life comes, and the Bible tells us that storms will come, and if we live life, we know that storms come. They come all the time, and they come unexpected quite often. But when the storms come, my question is, do you have a leak in your roof? Those things from the outside, are they penetrating and coming on in the inside? Because if you leave a leak to do its work, it will move from just a nasty little ring mark on your ceiling to corrosion. And when the storms of life come, how do we respond? You see, in the Bible, we see the disciples, how they responded. They're in a storm and they panic. They think they're going to die and they wake up Jesus. And I want to say this. There is nothing wrong with panicking. But if we stay in a place of panic for long, that panic will move to anxiety. That anxiety will move to stress. And stress unresolved will move to depression and other mental health challenges. When the storms of life come, we need to center ourselves on Jesus and say, Jesus, meet me in this difficulty because I don't know what to do right now, but I need you. And I need your peace that passes all understanding. I need you to address the leak in the roof because it's creating havoc on my well-being. And no matter what happens, I'm going to trust you with this storm. Let me illustrate, if I may. I'm going to come to an end. But when a few, maybe about 20 years ago, or even more, when I was a director in London of Youth for Christ, we were in a school, and it was a very rough school. And we were the only ones who would come in because no, they, the, the RE department basically didn't want to teach. So they just brought in Youth for Christ because it was a zoo. And they were like, you deal with these crazy young people. You teach them about God because we can't. So we loved it. We were like, yeah, we'll, we'll do this. And so we would go in on a regular basis in what felt like a war zone. And uh, we, I remember <laughs> uh, asking for volunteers and we would do the faith test. Now you all know the faith test, which is you get someone up and you say, put out your hands, fall backwards and I'll catch you, right? We've all seen it done. And you go on to give a fabulous message about faith. So this particular day, I get a volunteer out, 12, 13 years of age, and put, say, put out your hands. If you trust me, fall backwards. He falls backwards, I catch him. And then if they do that, because not even everyone passes that, but if they do that, you then blindfold them, say, do it again, and they fall back you catch them if they do that you spin them around and then you say fall back and catch and very few get to that place and if they get to that place you say okay now comes the ultimate test I'm going to stand in front of you and on the count of three you fall backwards and I will run under your arms and I will catch you before you hit the floor right and nobody nobody ever does it why would you do it you know I can't get under your arms and get you before you hit the floor no one ever does it This day, 
There's a young guy who's eager and he's ready to go. Now, what no one knows is I have a year out who sat really close to the front uh, on a gap year and his job, his sole job, is if there is an idiot who is going to fall backwards, <laughs> he's going to leap up and he's going to get him. So this kid, <laughs> he starts to fall backwards and the catcher has never been called upon ever. So he's daydreaming. He doesn't think anyone's going to do it. He's looking out of the window. This kid's falling backwards, and I, I, I run forward to get him, and I try and grab him, but gravity now takes over. And so we are both falling. The catcher, who is very close, jumps up out of his seat like Superman. What he thought he could do, I don't know. But he jumps up, and rather than trying to catch the young guy, he just lifts up his knee to try and break his fall and knees him in the back of the head, in which case his head moves forward and I then nut the kid because I'm moving that way and then I fall on top of him. This 12, 13-year-old boy is now crying in front of all of his classmates and is in pain and leaves the class upset. I've got to tell you, it was very difficult to go on and saying, talking about faith and putting your trust in someone when they have literally just seen you drop them. In life, that is exactly what God says. No matter what happens, no matter what the storms bring, you need to trust me because I am with you in that storm. It may not go the way you want it to go, but you still need to trust me that I've got you. It will work out because I am with you and I will not let you fall. That is what he says, Psalm 121, I will not let your foot slip. I have got you. And when the storms come, we need to say, Jesus, however difficult this is, I know that you are here and I'm going to put my trust in you.